Welcome to the Jungle Brothers Podcast. I'm your host, Joey. Today, I'm chatting with the Splits Wizard. Emmett Lewis is a man known for having created modern methods of mobility. He is also the co-creator of the Handstand Factory, and he was my coach personally online for a couple of years. He has taught numerous workshops at Jungle Brothers, going back into our old gym and also at our current space. And he's also been on the podcast a couple of times, and both of those episodes were filled with immense takeaways for strength, mobility, more effective training practices. And we go further into that discussion today. So if you haven't heard his previous two episodes with us, do go back and have a listen to them. I won't say any more. Please enjoy today's wide-ranging chat with Emmett Lewis. <laughs> are you gonna what are you using i think i got the same setup as you got a roadcaster and i basically just use road audio for everything man you got the roadcaster pro is that the desk yeah uh, yeah the little unity one yeah it's fucking amazing isn't it? it's like the iphone of podcast desks yeah no it's awesome it's like it basically like reduced our editing time from like an hour and a half per episode to like about 40 seconds yeah do you just do you do it all live on the thing? Like you do your intro music and yeah. I, I got to be honest, I didn't actually know you had a podcast. I feel bad saying that. <laughs> got two podcasts. What are they? We've got the Handstand Factory one, the Handstand Cast, and we have Bendability, oh, yeah. which is my one. Holy shit! And how often do you release episodes? Bendability, the Handstand Cast is weekly. Bendability is a bit spotty at the moment. It's about every two weeks, every two three weeks. Okay. And are you doing uh, like are you doing guests for those, or is it you? Uh, it's, and, like where? so, Hansan Cast know. is me and Mikhail who does Hansan Factory with me. Then we get guests periodically. So we had, yeah, we had a few interesting guests over the last couple of seasons. And yeah, yeah kind of. Does it ever get hard to keep talking about handstands, or do you find to the depth that you understand them, and Mikhail as well, obviously, that there is an infinite amount of discussion around them? think there's an infinite amount of discussion around it or for us anyway like we're up to 84 episodes on it or 85 and not yeah. that like right brag we literally just don't plan the episodes we just go in and pick a topic off our board on the day and then just record man how long are the episodes that's got to be the uh, next about question. an hour wow yeah that's awesome i mean you know we do one hour episodes sometimes longer for, for the jungle brothers podcast yeah and it's not it's not, depending on the topic, it's not necessarily easy for two people, you know, to keep up an energetic yeah. conversation. Is it like like an hour is solid if you can do it? Yeah, I think an hour, like, it's kind of one of those, if you're getting into a scripted podcast where you just have everything planned out, then they'd probably be shorter, to be honest, because we wouldn't ramble as much. It'd be more to the point. Yeah. No one fucking does those. Well, we don't do, like, <laughs> I, I've never found that idea of scripting out a show attractive like it doesn't appeal it might yeah. sound really cool from from the maybe from the listeners end oh it's a different experience but it could sound kind of nice but i feel like the act of doing it would just be a completely different experience yeah uh, as compared to like this where we're just chatting yeah no definitely i think it's a there's a few podcasts i listen to where they are fully scripted like uh, lore i don't know if you read that one it's kind of about folk folklore and spooky stuff but that one kind of makes sense to be scripted because it's just someone telling you about something. Yeah. Whereas the other ones are like, okay, there's a conversational style podcast, which would just be weird. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, those, those sorts of ones. Do you ever listen to um, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History? 
Uh, no, I haven't actually. He's uh, Joe Rogan sort of has had him on in the past. Um, the he does these amazing episodes where he will he'll dive deep into a particular aspect of history. The the the, the series that he got most famous for was the it was like a five part that he did called Wrath of the Mongols. Yeah, and it was it was you know sort of all about um, Genghis Khan and and his um, tirade through you know through Europe. But he does this huge amount of research. I think he does like eight months of research and then he'll make the episodes. Oh, nice. And so, it, yeah, like he's basically written a book, you yeah. know, by the time he's reading this thing out. But then I think he throws in a bit of off-the-cuff stuff. They're fucking amazing, like super entertaining. Oh, I need to check and it's out. usually around like blood and guts and primal, <laughs> you know, kind of medieval type stuff. Nice. Yeah. Oh, awesome. And I was I was reflecting just before you were you were booked to come and teach a workshop here yeah. at the gym at Jungle Brothers. This was gonna be this was two years ago and COVID screwed that up, did it not? Yeah, basically it kind of like it screwed our travel plans up. We had this epic trip planned where we we're going to start in Melbourne, get a van, and then drive all up the coast of Australia up to Brisbane and then stop along the way. Check out you guys. Check out who else? A few, like a few other people on the way. Meet Kate. Meet some friends. All that kind of stuff. And then Ronick, this fucking your country just banned people coming in. Yeah, our country's really gotten a bad rap on the international scene, hasn't it? Yeah, it's just kind of. It's like, yeah, I can understand the advantage of being an island nation in this situation. Just like it's fuck it, lock the doors, but. Yeah, it's funny. We get um, I'm in touch with some American folks through like the, some of the jujitsu stuff that I do, yeah. and uh, I get a lot of reach outs from them. Like, man, is everything okay over there? Like, I heard it's like a military dictatorship, and there's helicopters flying up and down the streets, and you can't go outside. Like, no, it's not that bad. Like, you can't. Uh, yeah, maybe you can't come in, but you know, I yeah. guess for the if you've got enough at the moment, from what I know, the people who want to travel can, though it is expensive. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just one of those things. Is what, whatever restrictions and stuff. But the news we're getting, particularly if you're kind of slightly inclined to the right-ish narrative or the anti-COVID narrative, is Australians are like literally be going door to door and getting shot if they're found outside <laughs> their passes. And like it's literally just like it's funny because like I you know I kind of made a choice like many years ago just to read. I don't read center news. I read hard left and hard right news and then kind of find where they overlap to get the truth or find you know that kind of thing and on the right side it's just like it's it's insane some of those like particularly when you get into the fake news sites the things that are going around that circulate very quickly about australia it's like australian children have been taken from their parents because they weren't following the covid pass and now they're in a detention camp in like the desert in australia and won't be returned <laughs> And then obviously that goes viral across certain feeds and you're just like, okay. Yeah, they've got a picture of like stolen generation. Like, you know, like that I find, I find when you see that really hard right stuff, um, they, the stuff that gets a lot of traction and that gets a lot of, um, that people love to share on their Instagram, it's often where they've merged multiple different stories. Some of yeah. them true, stolen generation. Yeah. But they merge these multiple things. It's like um, David Icke merging the lizard people with, um, you know, the 5G cell yeah. towers merged with, you know, I don't know, fucking um, 
take your pick, fluoride in the water. Yeah. And, and it forms like this super conspiracy that is just so juicy, people can't help but like yeah. s- sink their teeth into it. Yeah, is this one like there's definitely a good point on that one where it's I've always kind of liked conspiracy theories and like not so much the ones that go around now, but like all the alien shit and all this other kind of stuff where it's like it's just kind of if you look at it from a sort of slightly higher level, it's this big form of like collaborative narrative fiction where people are kind of just coming along and they're taking a world and they're kind of adding a little chunk to it and just it just gets dropped in like covert sources and then you're kind of left to kind of. Like I don't know if remember people remember those choose your own adventure books from the eighties. You'd have a book. It's kind of like a game of Dungeons and Dragons. You read and go, okay, do I go to page eighteen or page twenty nine to read that bit? And then you're like, oh, it's like someone drops like Uncle Intel. My uncle's working at this army base, and he's just told us that the lizard people are hijacked our nukes and they're fighting underground. And then someone will just go, oh, underground. We heard about an underground railway that connects DC to thing. Maybe they're protecting this and kind of build up their own story. And that's kind of like, it's really yeah. cool if you look at it from that point of view. But then when it just starts going like, oh, there's people outside in Dallas waiting for JFK Jr. to come back from the dead to lead them to an excess <laughs> fight against Biden. It's like, okay, possibly gone a bit too far. <laughs> it's it's almost like a, um, I've, you know, we've all spoken about it a lot through COVID. There's obviously been, you know, this huge uptake of, or this kind of division in a way where you see friends of yours. Yeah. Who have gone really hard to the to this you know conspiracy theory side and and I'm the same. I love a good conspiracy theory. I find it, you know, I find them very fascinating. I'm very open to the reality, like to the to the potential of them that they yeah. could be true. Like when I I'm not one of those people that shuts. Like oh man, did you hear about the 9/11 thing? It was an inside job. I'm like fuck. I want to watch that documentary. I want to yeah, know exactly. a part of me believe like Mulder. Yeah. Um, but the you see the people who have gone super deep and really just kind of take all of them on board. And it's almost like this high level, not high level, that's the wrong way to put it, but it's like a sport or, or just a, <laughs> a form of entertainment that people choose to engage in. And they, and I think for a lot of them, they're like, nah, man, this shit is real. Yeah. They know it's not real. It's just so fun. Yeah. I think it's probably what you nailed kind of like on that people making stories where like if you put a grain of truth into it and then build off of it, then it kind of, you know, you put something plausible and then you use that as a foundation for like, oh, oh shit, this is actually going on. And then it's like, oh wait, then that means the next level behind it has to be going on. And it's, in some ways it can be a distraction from the actual problems of shit, what's going on. Cause it's like, oh, it's like, oh, there's literally this problem going on, but it's the, you know, the Bilderbergers are causing it. It's like, well, actually no, it's just your local state government and it can be fixed by voting. <laughs> but then you ask them if they voted they're like nah fuck that I don't yeah. vote <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what the what was the situation like you're in Dublin yeah. you were were you in Ireland at the time yeah when COVID hit or yeah how long you been there I met you were in Germany before how long have you been back yeah, in Ireland back in Ireland about you know that's a great question I think four years now okay so Moved back over, like, we're just, yeah, living in Germany. And to be honest, it's very hard to make friends in Germany. And that was kind of why we moved back. Now, that really? was partially on us because, like, we were there and, like, because we were traveling so much at work. We Let's say one year we were f- in Germany 14 weeks for the whole year. So we were just gone for whatever, 38 weeks or something like that. So 
it's just kind of when you're living in Berlin, one, it's a bit transient, and two, it's a bit... If you're trying to make friends with German people, not that they're unfriendly, it just takes a while for people to warm up, and they're kind of... Yeah. You know, and then when you do get friends with them, they're very deep friendships, but they do kind of like like to, you know, suss things out. But when you're only there 14 weeks a year, it's very hard to kind of keep a friendship going in the early stages. So we were kind of decided, okay, we'll just go back to Ireland where we know people and it's kind of Irish people, as probably just like Australians, you can just slot right back in once you kind of have an established friendship or friend group. So that was just a bit easier. And yeah, so then we came back. And then, yeah, the madness happened. Did you have uh, did you have plans beyond Australia that trip when the Rona hit? I'm trying to think what other stuff I planned. Like we had our sort of normal schedule of European workshops in planned, and then we also had the retreats planned, which we basically cancelled and cancelled. And then the retreat venue we used burnt to the ground. <laughs> so we had wildfires oh. all around Europe, like southern Europe this year, and that's where the retreat venue was. So oh, yeah. We've been kind of lucky enough, but I think, yeah, the rest of the world has had a lot of shit going on. Where were the wildfires? Like what they country? They were kind of, it was kind of spread out. Greece. Yeah, so it was Turkey. Turkey is where the venue is and they had some, but it's kind of that kind of, yeah. the I'd almost say like the lip of the Mediterranean kind of had a string of wildfires and Portugal had them the year before. But I'd say, judging by the way the climate's going, I'd say the rest of most of Southern Europe is probably going to have an epic one this year. Yeah. Kind of on the scale. Hopefully not on the scale of what happened in Australia. Was it two or three years ago? Two years ago. It was just before COVID. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'd say something like that might happen unless you get a bit more rain. God. It's, um, yeah, it was a real shithouse run of events over here i you know i gotta be honest for me here in the city we're pretty oblivious to the to the fire piece yeah you know there was there was yeah some um, it did affect the, the city somewhat but yeah like driving down the south coast recently actually you can see a lot of the bushes is, is you know it's coming back and it's coming back and it's filling back up again like the the low like what was what had been cleared out yeah the fuel on the floor and the, what had been taken away has now started to come back and there's this bed of stuff that's just waiting to get dry and catch on fire again. <laughs> treacherous. But yeah, but that was, I mean, there's communities out there that have totally been, that will be rebuilding for a long time. And, and something that I've been oblivious to, I spoke with a, a fellow we had on the podcast a while back, um, Paul West. Um, but he was saying like the, there's a lot of scarring um, emotionally for folks who were, who were yeah. around all of that. You know, it's pretty... It's yeah, it's, it's amazing to think like it, it. It was such a big thing when it happened, and then Corona came and it just kind of pushed it. I don't know, kind of yeah. swept it under the rug or forgot about it, and then we're locked down. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like if you look at all the big world events that are kind of forgotten about, or not so much forgotten about, but just yeah, not given enough news cycle as they would have been given. Like you know, all the stuff, the Black Lives Matter stuff in the states, all the riots that were going on, all the counter demonstrations, all the kind of offshoot stuff of that the Indian farmer protest which is the world's largest protest we've ever had on this planet was really yeah so that's the thing no one really is hears about water, it water, like, water pipeline uh, is that what that was I'm not exact I think it was multiple causes I think basically Indian Indian has a lot of subsistence farmers 
And in the government's quest to modernize, they're basically shafting the subsistence farmers and things are getting very expensive, fertilizer, water, seeds, you know, for various different reasons. So it's causing a huge amount of strain in these communities. So they had, you know, millions of people protest. But yeah, you heard nothing of it. Yeah, exactly. No one's heard anything of it because, like, one, it's in India and it's not interesting to the West or they've decided. But also, just there's so much other shit going on. It just gets a day. Yeah. So what was it? What was it like for you then? Those main revenue sources of yours were taken away: seminars, um, workshops, yeah. and, and retreat stuff. Were you? Yeah, what's the deal? Were you able to get government support or were you able to piece it together through online means? Yeah, so we kind of like lucky because we started to invest a lot of our stuff into into online stuff, which was fine. So like, you know, we had multiple revenue sources anyway just for stuff. So I had my one-to-one personal training that we do our online training. Uh, we have Modern Medical Mobility online training, which was the flexibility training. We have the Handstand Factory online courses. So basically, obviously, the hands-on factor, the courses, so the, the drop in revenue from the seminars was covered by the rise in people buying courses to train at home. So that was yep. very good. So then that also made us double down on course production. So over the course of that year, we were able to actually get into studios who so weren't traveling as much and record the full M3 syllabus, or not the full syllabus, but all the courses that we're going to drop now over the next course, next, yeah, next bit of the year. Yeah. Currently writing. So that's kind of... Yeah, it's kind of just focused on more of a shift online and a more sort of refinement of the business, which is kind of needed in the end. Can I ask how many online students you have, roughly, uh, as you, your own one, one thing? So normally I'd take about 25 to 30, kind of would be capped there. But yeah. I've dropped that, dropped, like I've completely dropped all that business. I have like two or three I kept on just to keep making sure I'm still not getting rusty while I'm writing all these courses. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like that, isn't it? Once you step back from doing that side of your work, yeah. if you, it's you lose the. What do you? What is it there? You just lose the. You fall out of practice. You lose the rhythm. Yeah, I think it's kind of. I think coaching when you're coaching over video and other stuff, you just have to be able to keep your eye sharp in ways that you, like, let's say, okay, you're coaching someone in the gym. You're going to do a workout with them. We'll have five sets of an exercise. You're going to see five sets. They're five working sets plus their warm-up sets. And you'll be able to go like, oh, I see something. I think that's going to be the issue. But I'll keep an eye on it when they get heavier and see if it goes away or see if it comes up. Okay, they're still doing that wrong. Okay, I can step in and correct it. Whereas in online coaching, you might have two sets generally. Or like one set even. And let's face it, people tend to show you the better sets because they're like, oh, look at this one. It was really good. They don't want to show you the shit stuff. <laughs> Guilty. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. So then it's like, okay, you just need to be able to go like, okay, well, you know, what am I seeing? Am I actually seeing that or do I think I'm seeing it? And is that actually the right cause? So that's kind of, it's a skill that needs to be kept sharp, I suppose. Do you find has the the type of person that you train one to one has that changed over the years? Do you, you know has it moved towards more kind of specialists? Or, you know, hand balancing that kind of thing, or is it always? Do you yeah. get a lot of sort of general mover approach 
I always think I get the people who are, I don't know, because I don't really advertise, I don't really post on social media. You know, there's probably not even a link anywhere that says I actually do online training, except maybe on my website. And I only get the people who have, like, kind of gotten a bit, they've gone through a lot of other stuff already to decide, okay, that's it. So it's kind of, maybe they haven't done online coaching, but they've probably generally done other coaching. But I have equal amounts of people, you know, I'm trying to think who have the okay at the moment i kept five clients on just to keep myself fresh i have one guy who works in a very big tech startup who is immensely stressed and can only literally has physical capacity and stress-based capacity to only train one session a week and we have to make that a session effective and he has a couple of suggested other sessions if he's feeling okay that week and then i've got a couple of kind of fitness influencers who just have infinite time so okay well (laughs) You can do 10 sessions a week and this person can do one and then, you know, the other few people kind of slot in between that. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah. I think that that sort of exemplifies what I always have found unique about your approach as a, as a coach because you, for people who don't, maybe who aren't as familiar with your work, excuse me, I need to cough. Yeah. For people who aren't as familiar with your work, you sit at that level of world-class coach, uh, a guru of sorts within the movement realm. I know, I know. I'm so sorry. You, you know, even <laughs> even though you, you chopped the, you had the top knot, you chopped yeah. it off. You still retained that guru status in my eyes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but but you but you know you, you you're you're at that place. So people who are, who are in the movement realm know you and know your work. But it's it's rare that that your that the approach is as relaxed as you take. And I think a lot of like a lot of those other coaches I see are so fixated on making everybody fit into the program that they want to write. Yeah. Rather than you know actually truly customizing it for the person. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's just like like you know my interest in coaching isn't is problem solving more so than teaching a specific thing. So some coaches just like, you know, you can put movement, you can put, always put in a bit of sport. It's like, I am a badminton coach. I will teach you to play badminton. And you'll get good at badminton no matter what, and we'll make, we'll make you good at badminton. Whereas I'm more just about like, okay, come to me. you got a problem. Let's try fix it. I've got some tools. We'll see if they work. That's what I like to think, you know, that's what keeps it interesting for me because if I was just basically making people into badminton players, I just go, okay, everyone has to do the same things. Everyone has to follow the same program or the same kind of thing and have the same ethos. It's just, it's boring to me. Yeah, so is that then, is it less about the, because I guess there's a, there's a thing where you have a body of students and, you, you want to hold those people up for others to see so that you can be like, look what I created. Yeah. You know, and I, I see that obviously, you know, I'm uh, as a, you know, having been a coach myself, I, I, I feel that compulsion, but you know, I don't train a lot of people in that sense these days, but you see it in jujitsu all the time and you see it in the movement realm where it's like, Oh, look what my guy can do. Look at this competition performance or yeah. look at this fucking one handstand. Um, but it strikes me that that you don't you don't seem to care as much about that. It's kind of more of just a like 
like you said, the problem solving piece, it's kind of a, a personal enjoyment from that aspect of the process. Yeah, I think it's one, like this is the kind of thing people have to, I know, where'd I go? I got this advice from a Louis Simmons book many, many years in coaching. And if you're gonna hold your students up by their successes, you have to stand by their failures as well. So everyone holds their coaches, their students by their successes. They go, oh, look at this person, he's a mega beast. What they don't show you is like the four people they've injured in the exact same manner in the same training phase and not adjusted anything, so they have a big injury cluster. They don't show, you know, I'm not gonna name names, but you know, I have an insight into a lot of people's programming because people generally come to me when they've done someone else's programming and it's like fucked them up in some way. And it's like, oh, like you, it's very, it would be very easy for me to create a program sell it on like its toughness and go, if you survive this program, you'll be a mega beast. And it would act exactly as a filter for people who are genetically predisposed for this type of training only. And then by the end of a year or two, I'd have all this big collection of mega beasts who one, like have a lifestyle that's conducive to the training 12 times a week, have the ability to completely follow orders exactly when it comes to diet, nutrition, scaling and other stuff, supplementation, sleep, everything, put other stuff on hold and then you go look at all these people they're amazing i have amazing students but then what they won't show you is like oh i had this client who is 45 two kids he tried to do the program and just got burnt out after about two months and that's the kind of thing for me i'm actually more i'm like you know going back to the client i have who's basically training one day a week i'm more happy that he's lost 10 pounds or five kilos in the last few months just through that and a bit of simple like not even simple dietary advice not even dietary control or input of just like instead of that do this instead of this do that go walking with your dog a bit more you know that's more satisfying to get someone who'd actually gained 15 kilos in the course of the kind of new job role he was in and go okay well we're actually down a third of what you gained without like destroying you and you're able to still keep functioning like that's uh, they're, they're Sorry, go on. Sorry, did I cut you off there? No, no, go on, no go on. you were breaking up a little bit. Um, like we're recording on your end too. It's a, a little bit of, the, there's a little bit of internet lag there, yeah. but I think we'll be fine once we combine our two recordings. Um, but that's a very interesting point that you make regarding the, the filtration that occurs when a coach just puts out a really gnarly program that is going to crush most people but the select few who make it through will become absolute savages. Yeah. That is, I mean, you know, I, 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 I've trained programs engaged in coaching processes very much like that. And I, I think back to it and I'm like, man, I got a lot out of that, but I also really kind of wrecked myself Yeah, making that just going through that fire. And there's things that you always take from that process, but there's a, there's a price that's paid as well. Yeah. Admittedly, I was in my kind of late twenties, early thirties, so it's fine. Like it, it's a, it's a good time to do such a thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, that I, really kind of sums up in many ways the jujitsu and kind of, you know, the fight training yeah. game for that that sort of thing where it's like it's brutal and it's not tailored to everybody and it's quite harsh and yeah. if you can survive through it yeah you might be one of those people that's like yeah this thing's been great for me it changed my life and that's what everyone's saying yeah all the survivors are saying but there's all these victims that are like 
you know they're not they're not singing praise yeah and it's like it's you know this isn't exclusive to the movement scene as you can say it's like exclusive to the sports scene like i know say the school i was in in secondary school in ireland was a rugby school i'm sure you know them from australia and that was you know <laughs> that was, school kid. yeah rugby school there's you know that's the main sport there and like i know lads who are now you know we're all approaching 40 and they picked up injuries like overtraining when they're 15 that are now with them for life it's like, or they crack the neck and like, you know, one of them can't turn his neck fully to one side. And it's just like, it's bone, it's like it's a bone thing. It's not anything fixable. And it's like, okay, well, you can't turn right for your whole life now for, you know, senior cup glory, which they didn't even get past the first round. Yeah, that's, it's really unfair when it's kind of, in, when it's put on kids at that age, huh? Because yeah. they don't, they don't know any better and they don't have, whatever they don't have the, the the faculties in their own mind to make a, a rational decision plus they're at school so it's like you got to do this shit anyway yeah yeah we talked with um one of our one of the coaches here at jungle brothers uh lucky well, he's up in newcastle at the moment lucky simpson but he's he's a savage kid early 20s but he came from that high level rugby background and i can't remember what we're talking about his weightlifting numbers when he was a teenager yeah, I can't remember, but he was, you know, he was cleaning like over a hundred kilos when he was sixteen years old, and yeah, bench, you know, bench pressing hundred kilos and deadlifting a couple hundred, and you're like, man, that is fucked. And he's he's a real specimen, and he's in great shape. But yeah. he said, yeah, man, a lot of guys that I know didn't get out alive. Like, <laughs> yeah, but then it's like if you know if the school program, like if you produce someone who gets onto like kind of international rugby just like say even club level not even like team level that's like, oh my god we produced this specimen it's like well he's probably a genetic specimen anyway would have happened regardless of the program yeah yeah that's a that's a good point there any fitness program would have done well by them yeah mate tell me um i want to i want to zero in on the mobility piece a yeah. bit and um, I we don't have to stay here, but there's a couple of things <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to do. Um, what do you? When I think about the work that that I did with you and the stuff that you taught when you you ran seminars or workshops here at Jungle Brothers, you ran one in our current gym, two or one or two in the old gym. Yeah. Um, and you know, and we still use that stuff, right? Like that 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 oh, that nice. your approach to mobility forms the the backbone of a lot of the stuff we do in the gym. What I do in in my own training. Bulletproof of BJJ, you know, we, we use nice. a lot of the stuff there. Um, you know, and I try to be quite open in crediting you. Yeah. Um, you know, just to be, to be clear. But um, what always stood out to me through, your, through learning the, the material that you were teaching was that a lot of it is just old stuff. That yeah. things, things that we already knew and, and things that a lot of the Russians knew. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it wasn't so popular in the West, but can you talk on this idea of like the old, the old methodologies of training and how we, they've, we've kind of circled back around to them and maybe not even yeah. exclusively to ability, but if it, if it's relevant to strength as well. Yeah, I think. Let me go to some thoughts on it. So I think basically like say to give an overview of how I actually came up with what I do is basically, so I went around you said I'd be a scientist. I'm doing science. I'm not doing science. I'm doing anthropology and observing people. 
And what I got was like, you'd go in and you'd ask people how to get flexible. This is my own personal quest. Like, I need to be more flexible. I go ask people who are flexible, and go, how did you get flexible? Or how should I get flexible? And they just give me bullshit. It's just bullshit. Just like, stretch this, do this stretch, do that stretch, do this, hold it for this amount of time. It didn't really make sense. So then I just started like, okay, let's just stop asking people because you're just going to get a kind of filtration thing and just look at what they do. And then we start looking at how people use their flexibility. Then you begin to get a bigger picture. It's like, oh, well, people are actually focusing more on the shortening side of the joint. They're doing working strength and range, but they're not calling it strength. They're calling it something else. They're doing it in different contexts. So then you go, okay, well, there has to be a logical regression and progression to how you would bring this methods together. And then just putting it together. And a lot of stuff I got would have been from very high-level flexibility training where they've kind of like contortion, rhythmic gymnastics and stuff like that. And then I kind of just filtered away back to use the same methodologies to, yeah, less advanced people would be the way to look at it. But I think a lot, this is the kind of thing, like if we look at it, it's like flexibility is part of human history. If we look at our oldest kind of things we have, in terms of recording of people performing physical feats. We essentially have wrestling and dancing. In the dancing, we have people displaying flexibility. So we always had these kind of two current trends. And then we have like archery or spear throwing, basically fighting and dancing. Now dance's problem is taken, dance and spectacle, we can put it into, is taken in the general context of religious festivals and gatherings. But when you put two people together or a group of people together and they're bored, they start just trying to do things with the body. Now, obviously, some people will have a natural propensity to just being able to do the splits naturally. We've met this person who can just, I never trained and I can do the splits or, you know, they're a yoga block away from the floor having never trained anything ever in their life. And they'd be like, they're able to do it. But then other people would see, oh, this person is able to do it. And they've got social capital. I have to find a way to do that because my one is 40 centimeters. So there's kind of a social capital thing and then also an aesthetic component that comes in. So if we look at it, if we say, like, if you want to future-proof your job, strength training is new. BJJ is new. Like, well, BJJ we could put on the wrestling, actually, as it's kind of a more modern incarnate. So that's, you know, a good choice. A day. Yeah, sorry, um, you know. But in context, like, I'm talking, like, we have history of flexibility feats going back three th- to 3,500 BC in some of the stuff right. I've been looking up. So it's like, okay, it's, you know, it's going back quite a while. So nothing is new, and everything's probably been done before. We just have to find out what's our modern way of describing this and what is, you know, what is our modern justification for these methods. So are you saying that there's, that there was, when you're talking about those ancient methods, yeah. would you, how far, did you, how far back did you say it went? Well, this is like, it, we're not talking about methodologies of training. We're just talking about like evidence of people being flexible. Right. So... So at that at that time, when was that? Did you say three and a half thousand BC? Yeah, I think it was like my. I'm going off the top of my head here, so forgive me anyone who knows history and I'm wrong. So my Sian culture and Chinese culture would have evidence. Now this is like inscriptions on tombs or pottery or thing that would have pictures on it of like generally people doing contortion handstand stuff, or is it a backflip, or is it? You know, it's obviously hard to tell from a static image, but they're still doing something that looks very flexible. I can tell you one thing, yeah. bridges are always impressive over the course of history, human history. A bridge is impressive and people do them. Right, like that's always wowed the, wowed the crowds. Yeah, basically. 
Does um so are you saying there that the assumption is that there was some kind of process around the people who were performing those feats? Yeah, this is the kind of thing where we'd we know from like Greek theater and other stuff there would be a kind of actor training. So we can assume that there would now this is me going on assumptions and you know, Dan Carlin should do an episode of this. But <laughs> You know, it is like when we have, like, particularly when we get to bigger spectacle needs and court performance, when people are like not just having one person in, but having groups of people in, and the groups of people will be working in unison or synchronicity, then people would need to be a kind of uniformity imposed upon them. And that's when we get begin to get like, you know, we have like tribal dancing, you know, tribal dance culture has always been part of human history to a certain degree. And that would just be kind of free form or certain tribes would begin to like uh, group around what the, what's the cool person doing. But when it begins to get into kind of formal religious rites and spectacle, you know, think of grand parades and other stuff, they need to have a kind of uniformity to them. And that's when you begin to get like, way, oh, there's a training here. Yeah, okay, okay some kind of instruction people working on yeah certain capacity maybe addressing their own their weaknesses so that the group can perform cohesively yeah and then it would also like if we think about you know if you think about training like beginning like we could use say martial arts from the beginning stage so we had wrestling as kind of ceremony construct but then we had like group fighting uh there's no martial arts at this stage there's people turning up and like fighting each other but then someone might go, oh, I used these kind of things last time. I kicked the guy in the balls when he put his hands up and that helped me stay alive. Maybe you could try it. So then it begins to get like people who survived passed on their knowledge. And then it kind of became, started to become more and more formalized into kind of like, oh, we can actually make someone good at fighting or we need to teach them to fight in formation. It's kind of the same thing in dance. It's like, oh, there's someone who's like, can do feats naturally and then someone will try to go like, oh, I can't do that, but I want to be able to do it. So they'll start trying stuff. And then maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Obviously, we'll start with a kind of mimicry. And then the mimicry will go, oh, actually this and that. And then, you know, they'll get a bit better. And then they'll be able to go to someone else. Oh, you can't do it. Well, I actually wasn't able to do it, but now I'm able to show you how. And then it kind of gets more and more formalized. Did you... Did you get into the the mobility thing expecting that you would be traveling back and reviewing anthropology from, you know, past yeah. generations to arrive at a solution? Like it seems, or, or was that really just where you were like, that's where the answer is? Like it just seems like quite a, quite a journey to have gone on for someone who wanted to just get more flexible. Yeah. I think it's going back to that problem solving thing. It's like, Flexible, like strength training in some ways, it the problem is solved until you get to kind of higher level. Like, you know, there's assessment systems, there's coaches who've done it before, there's programs you can follow, there's theory, there's, you know, if this doesn't work, do that. Oh, you've done this for so long, maybe you need to do this. You know, it's maybe not an exact, exact 100% answer, but it's, it's solved. Like if someone comes into the gym and goes, I want to be able to squat two by body weight, the path is basically laid out for them for the next, you know, four or five years or however long that would take. And, you know, it's also like it comes down to, you know, we know about recovery, we know about other stuff. But flexibility is still a bit of a mystery. Like we can create the strength, but it's not the exact same. It's like we have people who we try strength training methods or strength and length kind of methods. 
it doesn't work it makes them regress we have to use a different method and it's like well actually the research says it should work but it doesn't like it literally just straight up doesn't work so there's like phenotypes and other stuff that are still kind of a, a mystery to it what's a phenotype phenotype is just a type of person that has a kind of groupings now it could be genetic it could be previous training history it's you know it's not a it's kind of rough groupings we use in-house just to decide on people but the rough type uh, the rough type is basically you have two types we have people who are naturally very flexible uh, we have people who are not flexible right and do the people who are is there a correlation between being flexible and not having as much strength and being tight but we could strong? say we could say yes there would be this kind of these are the vague types it's like flexible and not strong Strong but not flexible. Now that's your two that's your two poles, but let's face it, everyone's gonna have a shade and then there is subtypes of like flexible and strong or high flexibility potential and good strength potential and low flexibility potential, low strength potential. Yeah. So it's kinda of like a good example to you is you're a good someone who has a good flexibility potential and a good strength potential as well. So you gain strength quite easy and you also gain flexibility at about a concurrent rate. Okay, and that's based off that's based off the results when I was following your programming. Yeah. you're like, okay, I can see where this is headed. Yeah, I did feel I, mean, I, w- I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I felt, um, yeah, I think a lot of the stuff I did with you showed me. I was like, man, I can get flexible quite quickly. Yeah, but it's also like you know, not to toot my own horn. It's more like okay, I could assess you and go, okay, this method, these methods will probably work. And we got lucky that we kind of latched onto the methods that worked quite early. So then it's like, okay, we got this on. We got the methods that work for you. Because once again, it is trial and error to find like exactly what's going to work. But we can take some educated guesses. And then it's just a matter of like, okay, just, you know, do basically hitting your head against the wall till it kind of works. Just doing similar programs most of the time. You know, I think I need to get back on it. I've been playing around with the back brand, back yeah. bridge in, in, in recent times, but I'm only doing it once a week and still really fucking hard i think i need to go back to the process yeah just dig up the old programs you have and just pick and choose out of them yeah well there's a question for you does do things you know so you identify somebody and what works for them and what they need at that time does could that change over time like say you you then reconnect with that person a decade later they're now not 25 they're 35 yeah is can things shift or are they fundamentally going to respond more or less the same way to fundamentally they'll respond to the same sort of training because that's kind of genetic to certain degrees my my current thinking is it's genetic and as well as previous training history but there will like generally what changes i've noticed getting older people is recovery capacity more so than anything else and it's not People are going to jump on hormonal stuff. It's more just like if we just look at the life and what goes on in a 45-year-old compared to a 25-year-old, it's very different life stages. Like, oh, okay, you know, I've married, I've got kids, or I might be planning kids, we're trying to get a house together. All these kind of things like, oh, I'm much more advanced in my career, so I need to, you know, work longer hours or be on call. You know, all these kind of soft stressors outside that eat away in recovery. And I think, you know, you like... You guys probably get a good spread of people in across like a range of ages and things, but I think a lot of people who work online don't actually get like how much of a stress it is just to have like two kids that you have to chase around. 
Yeah, I'm starting to learn that one. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think those things tend to creep up on you. And you probably, for most of us, you don't really acknowledge them. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I got, kids. I got a kid or whatever, but but it's cool. I'm still on top of all my shit. Like, you know, it's fine. Yeah. I got time to train and, and do whatever. But yeah, more financial stress, a mortgage, whatever, career yeah. goals. Before you know it, the, your whole landscape has kind of changed from what it was years yeah. prior. And it's kind of like if you look at like, oh, let's just, you know, if we like we have a have a you know a way it's an informal way of just assessing someone for like stress and how much training they can handle a week and it's just kind of you know it has all these boxes and like if you go oh my job is harder but it's only 10 percent harder you go okay 10 percent more stress and you go okay i've got two kids okay that's a 50 percent more stress and then suddenly you go like well this person could have handled maybe 10 sessions a week when they were 25 no problem now we're down to like okay let's just you know we'll talk about four sessions a week and then there's a an extra fifth session you can do if you're free at the weekend do you find people are in uh, often in denial about that stuff? Yeah, I think a lot of people with? like. I think a lot of people just because you know it is the motif of like on the internet, like train hard, work hard, get the results. If you're not training hard, not like not just showing up at the gym, then you're obviously not going to get the results. Whereas, I think you know, let's say, I don't know, it's kind of a lot, a lot of people have come to me from these programs where they're training ten days a week or ten sessions a week. And then I'll go, well, you're clearly burned out from this. It's not working for you. Let's just do five sessions a week. And they get the same results, you know, proportionally the exact same results that they were getting. I'm like, well, were those extra sessions doing it or is it just too general a program? Yeah, I live, I, I experienced that firsthand. Yeah. It's a real, um, it's a big realization when you, when you like, holy shit. I am getting strong doing four workouts a week, which are each taking me whatever, 90 minutes versus I was doing four hours a day, you know, four days a week. Yeah. Like yeah, it's wild because one of those is it kind of integrates into a reasonably balanced lifestyle quite well. The other one, there's absolutely no lifestyle balance. It's just <laughs> pure dedication to the training. Yeah. I think it's that kind of thing. There's like, was it? I was looking at like work hours. Once you go over, you know, forty hour a week, your work capacity output drops like in a normal job setting to fifty percent of your normal operating capacity, and then every ten hours over that, it drops another fifty percent. So it's kind of half life. So then you're doing sixty hour a week, but that last ten hours you're only doing twenty five percent of the work you'd be doing. <laughs> so you know, it would take another forty hours to actually catch up on the work you think you're getting done. So it's not like it doesn't scale as much. And I think there is that, particularly with like training, where people just don't realize it. It's like we've got training, we've got stimulus, we've got response, we've got optimum somewhere in there. But then after that, it's kind of like there's this big zone between overtraining and optimum that you can just keep training in, but it's not actually adding. Yeah. Mate, that's a that's a huge idea. I mean, it makes me think about my the work hours that we've always held here running a gym. Yeah. <laughs> Depressing. Tell me about um so we've gone to the this kind of idea that there's there's something to be learned from from looking back. Um talk to me about the the early stages of processes around training so when we started to see like when you found evidence of 
okay, now people have, you know, there's, there's mobility work going on here or some kind of training. Have you found any of that? This is the kind of thing I've, this is my actual latest kind of thing. I've been trawling the history books for the last, you know, it's been a project for like, since I've been writing the courses and the other stuff to try to find actual structured training. And this is the thing we can find because let's face it, soldiers are sexy. We can find, you know, either historical accounts or other stuff, obviously historic, you know, when you say historical in that sense, it's a bit hard to say, is it real or is it fantasy? It's always like, it's not, it's not the same rigorous academic profession we would, but they still find like, oh, I can find out like, how did Roman soldiers train? They go, oh, they trained this and this, this and this. Oh, I can find that. How did Greek soldiers train or Greek wrestlers or Greek athletes, you know, back in the day? Okay, you can find accounts of it. Is it, it's not like a training plan, like on a one that Sunday they do this, but it's like someone giving you a high level overview of what they kind of done or an observer point of view. But we can't really find it for dance process. And this would be kind of, this is kind of the hidden trend of like, I kind of have them roughly divided in my own head. There's nothing real to this, but it just helps me keep them separated. That we have kind of two trends in humanity in terms of physical, physical cultures, where we have this kind of, quantifiable culture is one way to think about it. It was very like fastest, strongest, furthest, biggest, heaviest things that are like very, like it's very simple answers like yes or no. Uh, that's very good for comparison. And obviously a lot of men would tend towards these, but not exclusively, but it's still just like, okay, we've got this, you know, the classic, the original Olympic games is a thing or like the test of manhood stones or you know, the manhood feats or other stuff that cultures would have or like this. Whereas we also have like, if we look at the dance kind of culture where we have this kind of subjective thing where it's like, oh, you can't really quantify dance other than just like they danced for two hours or they've done a performance. It's more like, you know, for the people watching, it's like, did it make them happy? Did it create reverence? Is it fulfilling the stories? Like a lot of dance will be telling, you know, the stories in of the legends of that tribe or this grouping or not even tribe, like this civilization in kind of yeah. a form that people got, would be able to watch and enjoy. Whereas it's not really, it's not really measurable. It's not really like, did a thousand people enjoy this? Yes, but like last year, someone 1,400 enjoyed it. That's a good point. Yeah, dance is not, it's not a, it's not a, a measurable activity in that kind of yeah. linear sense. And then also like it'd be kind of so. So then yeah, the training. This is the this where things is like the training and how they actually trained and developed dancers and actors and troubadours and people who are involved in the spectacle doesn't really get recorded because people would kind of see it as you know it's the classic thing. Oh yeah, they're always just good at dance, so they can just do it. Whereas there probably would have been a process, but there isn't. Or it isn't now. You know, if anyone's listening and they have some leads for me and want to DM me, please do. But it is kind of something that's very hard to track down because it's not really. You know, maybe it's the historians that be recording don't really see that the training of a dancer or training of someone who's involved in spectacle was just as important as an athlete's. It's just different. Why dancers? Why dancers? I'm just using. I'm, Let's say dance is probably easy to do. I'm using dance and spectacle interchangeably here. So 
something you can watch. Like say, if we go back to the Egyptian pyramids, we can see that they had acrobatics, they had dance, they had jugglers as part of these kind of either, you know, entertaining the king or stately processions and and parades. But the thing is, before we get to this formalized hierarchical structure of a civilization where we have like a kingly class, a religious class, a story class, and, you know, the plebs underneath all that, us humble plebs, we have, we would have had all this stuff beforehand. They just co-opted it going like, oh, we have dancers. Let's make more dancers. Let's put them into this. You know, these things would have existed before all this kind of formalized civilization recording. Uh, yeah, okay. I see. But uh, so then I guess what I'm trying to understand is do tell me why, what the relevance of a dancer is, say, relevant to the human performance aspect, like the strength and mobility side of it. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned like wrestlers, you've mentioned yeah. soldiers, like these other forms of, you know, these other types of, uh, these other roles that require their own physical capacities. Yeah. What does dance require that makes it, um, you know, uh, uh, like a guiding point? Uh, I'm going to flip this slightly. I'm going to issue you a challenge. I want you to go to a ballet class and then come back to me and tell me it's not physical. <laughs> I completely agree. <laughs> like, absolutely. I guess I, I ask that more for people listening. Yeah. Maybe you haven't. Yeah. So, well, we'll flip that to a challenge. Uh, Jungle Brothers are now going to run a, a ballet weekend seminar where they're going to get a nice one of the Australian national ballet is very good and get one of the dancers <laughs> in just to teach a class for two hours and then everyone's uh, mysteries will be you know revealed on how hard this stuff is and that's the kind of thing it's like if you're in a spectacle type performance where you're like going to be you know it's honoring the king or the return of the sun or telling a historical tale or something that the society has decided to remember like these festivals would go on for days and they'd require the performers to be doing stuff for days maybe not days on time but like okay you're going on you're going on it's very physically demanding and a lot of the time like maybe the training was just like monkey see monkey do copy the person copy the person until you get it right and someone go no it's not right not right okay it's right or it could be this is the thing what i'm still trying to figure out is it like a formalized like okay this dancer is losing their breath during the show a lot okay, I'll go make them go jogging or something like this or, you know, these kind of things. Yeah, I see. Yeah, we've always, we've always said it, that, that um, dancers have to be some of the strongest and most coordinated, flexible athletes out there. Yeah. Um, there's, and there's, there's obviously so many different, diff- different forms of dance. So, you know, it's varied, but if you look at the skills we're trying to develop in the gym, you, you can, if you want to see someone that's almost, you know, in the same way that a lot of fighters are putting it all together in their own way. Yeah. Dancers are exemplifying multiple different capacities at once. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of, it's CrossFit, but different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have the knee sleeves and shit. Yeah. Oh, it does. That's the, like you get those knee pads for sliding on the floor. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I can see it. What about um, bring me to like to a, to a, an earlier period now, uh, or, or a later period rather? Yeah. Um, talking about something that I look back on all the time: the, this this 
book Stretching Scientifically. Yeah. Which I, I remember you uh, were quite a fan of by Thomas Kurz, yeah. famous Russian sports scientist. Uh, Polish, Master I think. Of sports science. Uh, yeah, Polish, Polish, yeah. Okay. Pardon me. Um, talk to me about that. You know, Russia or Eastern Europe is always held up as, as having kind of, um, I don't know, some of the greatest information regarding strength and mobility development and all of these things. And it was, and it was almost kept secret from the West for yeah. a long time. We're starting to learn them. Talk to me about that whole piece. And, you know, is there, is there truth to that? Were they doing things that are ahead of their time and how they affect what we do now here? I think basically yes, no, and maybe. So what was great, if we look at say that Soviet sporting apparatus, what it was was probably the first time where so many athletes have been put through programs and then statistically tested. And it was like very very 1980s science. We're going to try and measure stuff and then record stuff. Uh, it got very, like this where it, like it got mysterious. But like we don't have to forget, like there was huge state-sponsored doping programs going on at the time. Like we just, you know, just to throw something out. And not that every state isn't involved in this, but you know, the Russians, like we can go like East Germany, like the East German sporting team, like was superior because of state plan 2250 or something, which was literally just dosing people up with Tyrannobol, which was undetectable at the time. <laughs> and then just claiming like, even that athletes didn't know what they were on. They're just being told, take your vitamins by the coach. And so, you know, it's kind of like, and then it was like superior Soviet, superior East German training technology is what done it. I was like, oh, well, actually it was drugs. But, you know, the training obviously had to do something. But at the same time, it goes back to the meat grinder. Like the people who can survive in the training became the best. And I think a lot of, you know, as a, it's been a, must be a tough realization that there's sort of very, like, when you're dealing with someone who's a very genetically talented athlete in a sport, the training is kind of superfluous. You could probably put them in a black room with all the training equipment they need and say, come out and break a record whenever you're ready, and they'll do it. Now, and then the training just program serves as a filtration for the people who can survive it. Obviously, there's, you know, bits and pieces. You can obviously make a good athlete better, but this is a kind of hard wall that's, you know, not going to be gotten through. But a lot of the training we have, just because the programs were kind of, very logically constructed and very logically tested, then they could go like, oh, okay, we have so many athletes so we can actually get a comparison. We can actually assess people and put them in and then see what works. So that's why I think, that's why I think it has this mystique. It's also the Soviet thing, like anyone after the fall of, you know, the Soviet, the USSR, when the coaches were coming here, obviously like it was mysterious, like, the states had spent like since the 60s for the whole period of the cold war kind of vilifying dehumanizing these people and like also just you know you'd see the results of their training so then it's like oh this whole mysterious soviet union with their spetsnaz and their hidden you know training things that are making super communists that we need you know 20 million 20 billion on our defense budget more to fight this super communist threat so then people smartly capitalized on it and then go, okay, like if we look at, say, Pavel was one of the first wave of this kind of, you know, more into pop culture. Like, he'd done it great. He's just like, yes, comrade, we will be doing the kettlebells. You have never seen this thing. It's just like, <laughs> it's just resistance training. And, you know, if you look at Pavel's programs he recommends, 
you know, they're not anything you hadn't seen before. Okay, we're just going to do low reps and low sets and just kind of progress in linear progression, just kind of build stuff up. You know, it's good, solid training. And then obviously, like, because of the scientific focus of the USSR, you had a lot of percentage programs with, like, complex numbers. Whereas, like, you must be able to lift 93% in this lift. We have 300 lifts that we compare to, and if you can snatch this amount, then if you can't do 94% in this lift, then you obviously have to work on this lift to bring it up, and that will bring your snatch up. So it is just kind of like... a. You know, the next frontier will be Chinese stuff, will be the next kind of frontier once that starts leaking out of like, how were they training? So you can see it weightlifting already. The Chinese weightlifting method is the next, is the new USSR weightlifting method, new Bulgarian method. And it will yeah. like happen with track and field and other stuff that they're beginning to dominate in, or the events they will dominate in, it will become like de facto training. Right. But a lot of it is like the sexy other, the other who's just not you, not the thing you're used to, and has better stuff. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, that's a really interesting way to look at it. It's almost like a, a short lived kind of thing. It's a bit, it's, it's, it's a fashion in a sense. Yeah. I can, I understand that mystique. Well, you make really good point. You make about, um, about Pavel, Pavel, uh, Tetsulin for anyone that's, yeah. it's, you know, that maybe is not so familiar. Um, yeah, he was kind of one of the first guys to, He's sort of credited with bringing the kettlebell to the West, isn't he? Yeah. I remember I bought one of his books. And it was it was fine. You know, it was cool. It actually only had a handful of exercises in it, but it was an enjoyable read nonetheless. Yeah. But I had a whole chapter on making kettlebells and photographs of foundries in Russia yeah. where these strong men make kettlebells from molten metal and how the man that makes the kettlebell is even stronger than the man who like, it was almost like a tribute to kettlebell manufacturing. It was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's lots to be learned. Blacksmiths are jacked. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But that's kind of like, you know, it's, it's like even Pavel like got a bit caught up in his own mystique. Cause he, he had a lot of stuff like he was, you know, claiming to be coach of a Spetsna and you know, other stuff. I can't remember exactly, but then people started like, he was just hamming it up. He's like, yes, comrade, you will learn the secret Russian army strength training techniques that only the Russian top special forces would learn. And then people are like, kind of like look into the background of like, eventually, you know, after a number of years, they kind of turned on him a bit and like, oh, well, what proof do you have of actually being in the Russian special forces? And they're not, he's basically, I think the equivalent of a PE teacher for the special forces and not actually <laughs> in the special forces. Right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard a little bit of that. I heard he was, he's claimed to be a master, uh, what do they call it? Master sport. A master of sports. Yeah, yeah master sport. And he is not? I think basically his claim was he never, I think he passed the criteria because the master sports criteria is in Russia. is like, you know, you, they have them for basically every sport back in the day. It's like you've done this amount of competitions, you can do this amount of reps, you can do blah, blah, blah. And that gives you your master sport qualification. But right. I think he wasn't tested in it. I think his claim was like he's done the requirements for it, but he wasn't actually tested in like a competition or other stuff. Uh, okay. Uh, so he had passed the criteria for it, but he never actually received the certificate. So to that point about the 
the information that comes out of these places, it's there's a mystique attached to it. It's kind of like secret. It's always in another language. So there has to yeah. be, the information has to be deciphered, which is obviously a lot easier these days than it would have been, whatever, 20, 40 years yeah. ago. Um, you know, even, even I'm guessing 20 years ago, it would have been hard to, to translate some of this stuff. Um, I know Charles Poliquin would always talk about um, translating Russian texts and learning these methods and then applying it and, you know, bring it to the West. Do you, do you know anything about that and the, the, the validity of those claims? That's the kind of thing because like there was whether he was getting a translator or not I do know that there was text floating around that were translated and sold in you can find this like you know like Louis Simmons on Westside sells loads of these texts now translated just like they're basically essentially just like a photocopy in a ring binder of kind of some text he's found like the training and education of a weightlifter the training and education of track and field stuff like that so I know Louis was probably doing it and he definitely predates Charles and a few other people like it would have been a thing whether yeah I'd say it definitely would have been like this is the kind of thing like we basically had no information on like we look at strength training in terms of theory and practice you didn't really have it in the west in that kind of way until the kind of 80s like there wasn't really there was some research groups in university but now like every university has a essentially a sports science department whereas you know there would have been clusters of them here or there but it would have been like very kind of a lot of it and in some way if you look say the earlier days it would have been proving the effectiveness of certain equipment and not really a training methodology like not less gym equipment and all this kind of stuff <laughs> Did I ever tell you um, I did a level one qualification for Sambo, a sports Sambo oh, nice. thing here in Sydney? And it was a, it was one guy, as far as I know, who named Dimitri, yeah. who thick Russian accent, little guy, amazing physicality. This guy it was like yeah. a like like a jack in the box, and he wanted to start a movement of sambo competitions here in australia yeah. for anyone that's not familiar sambo is like a there's sports sambo and combat sambo sports sambo kind of looks like a combination of oh, they kind of look like a combination of judo and jiu-jitsu and wrestling yeah um and then when you have the, the combat sambo it's it's almost like it's like another form of mixed martial arts and that's what a lot of the great uh, russian martial artists have have trained in guys like khabib Nurmagomedov, and whatnot um, but he wanted to start a culture of it here. And so I remember my coach at the time, I think I was like a blue or a purple belt, said, hey, I met this guy, Dimitri. He's getting in touch with all the jiu-jitsu sort of coaches and he wants to um, running a, a, a teacher's course. And it's like one day and we can all go and become sambo coaches. Yeah. And so I went along and, you know, we, we did a couple of, we did some techniques <laughs> and it was, it was, you know, in a, in a kind of community hall and, it was all pretty ramshackle, the whole operation. Um, but it was a great experience. Got yeah. a certificate out. But the guy, he was a classic dude, like thick Russian accent, saying some really funny stuff. You know, had some, like, undoubtedly had some cool techniques. But he kept saying this one thing that stuck with me, um, kind of, and it speaks to this, this Russian sports science kind of model. He would say, he would make, he would make a claim like yeah. oh when you uh, when you we don't break fall in sambo when we when we get thrown we curl up in a ball and 
stay tight to protect the body. And he would say, and he'd look around and he could see that people were like questioning that because in jujitsu and judo, you break fall. Yeah. But he would say, we know this to be true because in Russia, we have building for studying this thing. <laughs> he kept on saying it. We yeah. have a building to study this thing. And, I, and I, I got it at the end. He's like, we have institutes where shitloads of money and resources and people are thrown at finding the best fucking way to play this sport. And he said, and, and most of you guys here in the West, you know, you guys, your governments aren't putting as much money into that as we are. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely like that kind of thing with, yeah. With these nations, I don't know how much it goes on nowadays, but where like a lot of the sporting stuff is part of the state apparatus and the glory of the state is doing so. Why, you know, if the glory of the state is tied into having, you know, it happens even in circus and ballet as well. It's like, we have these kind of things that are held up as the glory of the state. And we want to be some of this decided the value is put onto them. So why wouldn't we throw our best sciences, scientists at it? Why wouldn't we throw loads of money into it? Why wouldn't we have an institute for studying this stuff? Yeah, it's kind of that, it, it's, a, it's that fundamental thing though that we you feel like it would be hard for us to adopt to that degree in the West where, I mean, I remember watching a, a documentary on Chinese child gymnasts yeah. and they take, they take these kids and the, you know, these families that really, they, that come from nothing, they save up for a long time, maybe multiple generations to take their kids to yeah. a, a local city where they can put their kids into this program. And then the parents leave and they don't see the kids for like eight years. Yeah. And the, and the kid goes through this rigorous training and maybe they come out as, as you know, a high-level gymnast. Yeah. Um, we don't have that commitment, right? Like we wouldn't be prepared to walk away. Like the, that idea of putting state or yeah. the, the nation before the individual is just so alien to us. I think probably from a personal level, it's more a pragmatic choice for a lot of these people because they could be from very poor backgrounds and supporting a kid is very challenging. So then by donating the kid to the state then they get uh you know the kid is looked after so i think there is definitely a factor of that but i can give you a counterpoint on this in the west this is like we've kind of decentralized that like how many rugby families or soccer families do you know where there's that like i think of soccer over here and god and stuff like i know one guy who's like kids he has twins by the time they could walk he had them soccer balls and was just making them kick balls around the house his plan was to make his kids like into you know man man united players were like his goal for these kids but is that goal or not it doesn't matter because now there's like everything they do is about soccer it's like okay here's a soccer ball but as soon as he could walk they're kicking a ball he's into it he's obviously he's not a great coach but that doesn't really matter and then like you know i think they're a bit older now so now they go to like soccer camp for summer and now they go to soccer this it's the same with other sports, like particularly the sports that are kind of the held up ones in the community. So you probably see it like in rugby. I bet you there is private schools in thing that basically work as sports academy for rugby in Australia. I bet they're kind of a filtration system for players from about age 10. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just kind of, it's decentralized, but it still exists in a different form. Good point. Good point. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can't help but feel like when I, when I, and you see, you see those relationships, you see those families, I can't help but often feel like, like the, the, I know of a guy 
who takes his kid to all the jiu-jitsu comps and makes them compete and yeah. when you see them the first thing he's telling you is how many medals his kid won on the weekend and and you're like man this poor kid like his dad's just like you know yeah. and i don't know maybe the kid loves it but you feel like fuck the kid doesn't know anything else um but it's for the glory of the father yeah in that situation yeah and that's the kind of thing like the state just you know in kind of bigger i don't want to say communist countries it's bigger countries the state generally like takes over precedence of the family unit so then it's like yeah. it's not just for the glory of the state or it's not the glory of the family it's the glory of the state which is the greatest aspiration yeah talk to me about um talking more so like zeroing in on these training methodologies these these things that we know and you know you've touched on the idea that someone who is predisposed to becoming strong or becoming flexible will be able to come that way with with almost any kind of approach to it like it the the approach doesn't have to be that specific necessarily yeah um, in order to get the result talk to me about the mistakes that that you know that you see that we make now in regards to this stuff when you're when you're watching people who are on this quest to build strength build mobility where do you see people going wrong most often you know the number one mistake we deal with is not eating enough hmm. now that sounds weird like obviously it's not a thing but it's literally the most common mistake we deal with in terms of training is nutrition you know and generally it actually comes down to not eating enough and generally it's not the people who are overweight or new to it or whatever it's the people who have been training long enough where they're like oh i can handle quite a big training volume but they're still just eating like a rabbit and it's like it's literally you know it's not a sexy answer i wish i had a sexy one but it is the number one mistake it is like the amount of people who just overtrain. now we can just think about like just to give an example it's like okay we'll say i'll have someone who suspect them of overtraining we'll work out what they've been eating and they've been staying lean so they haven't stayed the same weight that they had at the start of the training phase to the end haven't gained or lost might have lost a tiny bit of weight and they might be in a two three hundred calorie deficit just enough that the normal fluctuation will cover them but they're not actually fully recovering and that's slowly pushing that person into a hole and that's when kind of a lot of stuff goes on so it is kind of it's one of the things like i like a bit more i actually got from the australian sports science institute when they were talking about body weight yearly body weight changes in response to the training cycle and competition and pre-competition phases where there should actually be like okay uh, we'll let this athlete's body weight go up a bit sort of within a certain bound then we have that they we know they perform best when they're this weight but we don't want them to be that way because it might be you know a weight class it might just be a running economy thing whatever but we go okay we'll get them up a weight we'll let them cruise there pre-competition phase we'll take the weight down to the training weight we'll hold it there for the training season and then bring it back up whereas a lot of people trying to assume like oh i I have I have abs and I'm 80 kilos. I should always have abs and 80 kilos. I don't think yeah. you have to lose the abs, but it's still there should be a bit of like, okay, at this point I'm going up two or three kilos. I'm just going to go up and wait. Then I'll hold it there for a while, and then I'll bring it back down. Is that something that people can do intuitively? It, it sounds to me like it's not. That's why I ask. It sounds like 
it's something that most people are going to need to be very structured about in, I you know, think, looking at their travel loads. And I think it's kind of like it's an initiation process. The, the goal, like this is the problem. Tracking, if you consistently track diet stuff, and I've done this and it like messed with my head for quite a while when like I was tracking everything I ate for a very long period of time. And I was just kind of like burnt out on that. So, but you do have to go through a phase where you're like, okay, I'll basically religiously track everything I eat use an app other stuff make sure i'm having the results in concordance like i'm eating three thousand calories a day is my weight going up and down okay it's going up or down okay record this over a period of time once you can kind of do that on a tutor level then you can drop it and just kind of go okay i need to eat a bit more the easiest way to eat a bit more is just have an extra meal a day it's like literally just find something else to eat don't bother you know doubling portions or whatever just eat an extra meal whatever that is and it's like okay you know Okay, my meal is, you know, I need to lose a bit of weight now. Okay, I just need to drop something. So have something you can drop out of it or something you can reduce in portion size. Generally, it's going to be the carb thing. It's like, okay, I was eating, you know, two fist size of potato. Okay, I'll just have one fist. Easy. But until you kind of have a baseline that you've established, and like particularly comes down to eyeballing things. Like particularly when like oils and other stuff, like there's a very, you know, you know, like, I don't know, a tablespoon of oil versus two tablespoons of oil is very hard to eyeball but it's very high on a caloric demand. Like these kind of things are like peanut butter. There's a difference between like 10 grams of peanut butter on a piece of whatever versus 20 grams, very high caloric demand. So yeah. this kind of stuff, once you can get good eyeballing, then you can do it more intuitively. But you still need to, I still think people need to come back and track every maybe once a year for a month just to make sure that they're tuning up. But you just want to avoid, basically it's like this kind of thing is like, you have to flirt with orthorexia. You have to like get close to the point of where you're like, oh my God, I can't go out because I can't weigh my burger and chips. And when you start thinking like that, that's time to tap out of tracking. But you still have to get like as much as you can out of tracking your, the way you're eating. And it's, it's a dangerous thing to track as well because let's face it, a lot of people in health and fitness are coming at the start of their fitness journey from a place of, you know, not good mental obsession you know they're coming in you know let's face it anyone who comes into fitness and goes i want to get better at something like sports is a bit better at this but like you know fit, general fitness like they're generally ups, upset about something the way they you know they don't feel good they don't look good they want to look better they you know are you know something's something's forcing them to go this because if everything was going right they wouldn't be in the gym lifting weights yeah okay there is uh, Unless it's just the training process they enjoy. Yeah. As a kid. Well, that's what I mean, like, say, sports and other stuff. There's still be, like, sports would be like, okay, I just enjoy the sport. And I want to get better at the sport. It still has that, like, get better. There's still a get better thing. And then there's something yeah. you can optimize in that goal. And then there's something you can start optimizing to the point of obsession. And that's the kind of, it's like, like, you have to flirt with the obsession, but not get to it. Right. Because then it starts to become an unhealthy sort of behavior. Is yeah, that, exactly. Is that your point? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. I yeah, I know that 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 was the case for me. I look back at you know touching on my that period of really high volume training, and I, I was under eating grossly for yeah. a couple of years, and um, I was crazy lean, and you know, and I look back and I'm like, man, I was in amazing shape back then, but I was also extremely tired, and yeah, I didn't, I know I didn't get as much as I could have out of the training. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a kind of, um, it's, 
it's kind of bullshit in a way because you're struggling. Yeah. Even though you look great and people tell you you look great. So you're like, oh, well, I got I to gotta keep looking this way. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely like, that's the kind of thing. If it was just a bit like seasonal, like this is the kind of thing, you can almost nail it down to the four seasons. It's like, okay, you know, okay, well, we have summer, spring, summer, perfect time to start getting lean. More activity, more sunlight, more blah. You want to be outside, you want to look great. Towards the end of summer, coming into autumn, well, that's when you want to start stocking up on food. You know, let's just, you know, we can pretend that, you know, carbohydrate is more available in the thing because all the fruit is falling off the trees and you have more sugar. So that means you get fatter. Okay, winter comes. Well, winter is kind of a battle of survival. So you want to try to keep your weight going. But this is the thing we kind of stuff our faces during winter because we have food available now. We try to keep it, but like you should kind of start using those stores. January and February come, you should be kind of cold and immobile and not doing much. February comes and spring starts to sprung, and then you can start going out and foraging for food again. So we can we can have a bit <laughs> of, you know, paleolithic mythopoeticism to this, but it does actually kind of define like when we want to be lean and when, you know, when we should start cutting and gaining weight. Yeah, it does. It uh, question: Do you do you follow something like that for yourself? Uh, I have done in the past. So the last two years have been shit for training, to be honest. Like all the gyms have been closed and getting out. So I just basically yeah. reinitiated my chronobiology cycle for like since yeah Chinese New Lunar New Year started on sorry, on Tuesday. So huh? I started there. What's a chronobiology cycle? The chronobiology is your time and. Chrono is time and biology is just how you react to different periods of time. Right. So we can think of chronobiology as we have micro levels, what I talk about like over the course of a year. And then we also have like, you know, daily climactic factors and other stuff. But we go, okay, then you have your aging cycles where we're going like, okay, child, teenager, young adult, adult, blah. So then your training will also should reflect different bits of these cycles as well. Okay, different life stages? Different life stages. Like, I've kind of tried to implement this as much as I can with students. So we just do the yearly cycle. It's a bit easier to understand. So winter, like, if we just think about it, it's dark, it's cold. You know, a very thing is difficult to go out. It's more about, like, going inside. This would be a stage where you're like, okay, I'm not going to try and push, push the training. I'm just going to like be satisfied with what I have, maybe take time back, reflect over what I've done on the year, what worked, what didn't work, you know, get into the more meditative aspects of the more calmer training. Then we get into spring. There's like this push of like we've, you know, if we look at a very, you know, we're, we're living in a fantasy caveman world at the moment. So it just kind of makes things a bit easier to kind of simplify things. But then we see, okay, we've kind of starved ourselves over spring. We've used our energy resources and we're now like, you know, lean coming out low body fat we've only been surviving possibly on animals and like random bits and pieces we forage all right spring starts coming it starts easier to get food okay there's a kind of energy in the you know speaking vagaries here there's like an energy going what's forcing the plants to grow but at the same time you've kind of pushed yourself into a bit of a hole you've possibly been in an almost famine situation okay bam start putting food in that's your time when you're going to start growing that's the time when you actually need to start going like okay am i going to gain strength okay we'll start gaining strength we'll start gaining size okay summer we come and like we've gained our strength and size that's the time for going out and exchanging with people that's time for like being outside as much as possible that's possibly the time when it's like okay let's just go and do do things together 
And this is like, if we look at like, when do most of the sports, like big sporting events happen towards the end of summer? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting your hemisphere. Yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, here it's June, July. Uh, and, and yeah, here it's, uh, wow, I'm going to offend some sports fans here. But like rugby league, yeah. uh, cricket, cricket is our summer sport. Yeah. But rugby league and soccer and rugby union are played during the winter. Yeah. All the cooler months. Yeah, we're gonna have the training like this is the kind of like the training from takes place over the cooler months here, and then the the competition happens coming into summer. Yeah, okay. Well, it also sense. it follows the school term here more so than anything else. Yeah, right. I guess ours does too. Yeah, but I, I I like I like your model there. It makes a lot of sense to me. It 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 um you know if I was if I was applying that to here to you know Sydney Australia, you could say. There's probably a period in summer where it's just too fucking hot, yeah. <laughs> and you, you know, and you kind of don't want to do too. It's really like this. Probably yeah. training is not a huge emphasis at all, but those those period. Like I think there's a lot of um, we have the benefit of you can make a lot of hay during the winter because you still yeah. got warm days. You know. Yeah. You know, I'm like I'm very. This is a very simplification of you know. We only have four seasons in the world, and everyone has the same seasons. But it just like it kind of identifies things that people can relate to, and then you go, okay, well that's kind of it. But then you know, there's local like Ireland has thirteen different seasons, I think, or something like that. Yeah, right. And then like there's the Chinese way of doing it. What I actually use for this is like twenty six different distinct periods. Ah, interesting. So then it's like okay, it makes things a bit easier to kind of have them. Yeah, I know that. Um, I know that in uh, men. There's so many different ones, but I, I remember hearing a guy speak at a TED talk about their um, indigenous Australians, uh, how they view the seasons and that there's microclimates in every different part of the country. But yeah, I th- 26 being the number that was, that was mentioned there as oh, interesting. unique. Season. Yeah. Fascinating, huh? Yeah. yeah. And he was talking about the absurd, you know, <laughs> the absurdity that we still attach to the four. However, as a model, for looking at your year and thinking about how you're going to structure your training. I do really like what you just put forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, it's interesting, like say for you guys who are doing programming in the gym, like you could begin to have, you know, flavors to the seasons where it's like, okay, this season we're going to focus on just skill and technique and that'll be winter. And we're not going to try to push our strength or push our muscularity okay we're coming into spring okay it's like gaining phase we're gonna try and gain a bit of weight okay it's summer let's like shred off that excess fat we got and let's like do you know put more emphasis on different things at different stages yeah yeah i've actually i used to i've i've always i don't program for the gym anymore but i used to do that for our strength and movement program and i I would always you you feel that it comes into winter and it's like it was it would actually be people don't want to work on skill-based stuff because they're really just cold and they only just made it into the gym because their motivation is waning at this time of year. So it was almost about like, Hey, let's just do simple stuff. Let's get a sweat on. We won't talk too much. Let's go. Yeah. But then in summer, people are more happy to be here. It's warmer. They're more open to taking on new information and trying things. Yeah. That's kind of like that's classic thing of like getting out and exchanging with people during summer. Say, oh, let's just learn something new. Let's you know get someone else to show us something. Let's. Ah, yes, this is where the movement realm really comes into its own, doesn't it? 
So how do you, you mentioned that you've done that for yourself. Yeah. Um, does that just guide, you kind of lay that out, you put it on your calendar and that sort of guides your training intention for certain periods? Yeah. Hold on, let me just check it. So I train with a guy for some other training called Serge Augier and he's got a book. Let me find out. Let me find out what the name of his book is. Serge, is that Craig Mallett's guy? Yeah, same guy. Yeah. So, Shout out to Craig Mallet. How's he doing? He's doing pretty good, actually. He's kind of he's up in Brisbane at the moment. Okay, that's Seems like everyone's abandoning Brisbane. What's the name? What's the... So bear me two seconds. Oh yeah. So the book is called Seasonal Nagong by Serge Augier. Now he has it all related the chronobiology from in Taoist terms to yep. uh, just to the Taoist kind of Nagong, Qigong sort of training. But if you just pick the book up and just read it, like it's very easy to extrapolate it to like normal sort of sports or acrobatic training. Yeah, okay. It's quite like it's quite like an easy read as well. Seasonal Negong. Yeah. That's N E I G O N G. G O N G. Yeah, okay. But yeah, it's kind of good because it just kind of lays out, you know, the focuses for the seasons and the interseason periods and stuff like that. I like that. I think it's necessary. I, I see the one of the things that brings people undone in the gym here and in, in training in general, as far as I can see, is this quest for constant growth. Yeah. And, and, and it's the same in jiu-jitsu and martial arts where it's like, I've just got to get better all the time. And there's an element to that. And you, you can, you know, what do they say? Nose to the grindstone, whatever. Like you, you, can, you can kind of get better all the time, but eventually something's going to railroad your efforts. Yeah. Whether it's injury or it's getting sick or it's just you burn out and you don't like that thing anymore. You're like, no, I'm sick of fucking lifting weights or whatever. Yeah. Whereas if you changed your approach to something that's perhaps a little bit more dynamic, a bit something that moves a bit more with a rhythm, I suppose yeah. is, is what I take from this, that it can keep you in the game. Like it can keep you engaged and enjoying it for a long period of time because to go into the year and go, all right, for these three months, I'm fucking working super hard, Yeah. but then I'm going to back off a little bit and I'm going to focus on some different aspects for this period. I think that that really removes a lot of pressure from folks. Yeah. And then it's also like, it's, you know, if we look at training over a lifetime pursuit, like you're just not going to be into the same things your whole life, your focus is going to change. This is a fact, unless you're like, you know, there is a few people who just devout, like, this is just the one thing I do and I'm always going to do it. But most people change around, but you can, you know, have that kind of yearly framework still. So that's kind of can still, you can still kind of have, you know, it's the kind of idea of an almanac or other stuff where you just have like a rhythm to the year where you do different things. Beyond that and beyond the nutrition piece, did you have anything else that you kind of see where people tend to derail themselves in the training process? Uh, doing too much is generally one. And I don't mean too much training. I think it's it can be very easy for people, particularly if you're programming for yourself, just to Frankenstein programs together and not look at where 
you know, where there's a crossover effect of either exercises or training modalities where you're like, oh, I'm doing this, this, and this. And it's like, well, actually, you know, you're training your Dr. Magnus in four different exercises for 28 sets per week or per session. It's too much. You need to back off. Like that kind of stuff goes in. And it's quite easy just to see like, oh, I've seen this, you know, this squat program online and I'm going to do it with this flexibility program I've also seen online. Whereas you kind of need to be, you know, it's not to big up the need to have a coach, but it is where a coach would come in and go like, oh, well, actually you're doing all this squat stuff, so you don't need to do the accessories because your flexibility training will take care of that. That kind of, that's, you know, it's a bigger, it's a big enough problem. I think it happens with every kind of thing. Like you see, you know, bodybuilding program, you see like, you know, X, Y, Z's arm workout for massive biceps, but then you're also doing a program by someone else that has loads of bicep work in it. And, you know, I think it is a kind of like, it's, it's kind of like an anxiety to it that you feel you have to be doing this or you feel you have to be doing the next best thing. T-Nation effect, I suppose, where like every week, you know, I don't know if T-Nation still exists or in whatever format exists, but you know, when I was first coming into this game back in like 2006, 2008, it was like, you know, it was the only game in town in terms of getting online information that was seemed plausible. But like every week there was like three different new workouts published on that site. And you'd be like, oh shit, I'm training my quads this way. But this one's the ultimate vertical jump program. Shit, I have to jump to that program. Or I have to do that and this other program as well. So I'll do like four days a week and that kind of thing. And then like you just don't get results. Yeah, we're attracted to the we're attracted to those nicely packaged things. Yeah. I was having a conversation with a fella today uh, talking about, and this is very off topic, but but somehow on um, Jordan Peterson, yeah, uh, who I'm not the hugest fan of. <laughs> uh, but he wrote a book, 12 Rules for Life. And everyone loves this book because it's like, what a title, like 12 yeah. Rules for Life. Like who doesn't want to read that book? It's, it, you know, it's, it's like it's like the ultimate arm workout or the yeah. vertical leap program that you're just like, holy shit, that's a secret key in that thing. <laughs> and I, and I, I fucking got to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Jordan Peter, uh, don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, he's, he, the, the more I see him, the more I think he's just an angry old man. Yeah, basically. Uh, but um, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. That's that is a a tough one for anyone that's training multiple disciplines. For martial artists, for for movement people, even here in our gym, where yeah. we we try to consider all of our programs, sort of, yeah. and how they fit together. But you might have someone that wants to come and train jujitsu four nights a week. Yeah. And then they want to go downstairs and do the bodybuilding class on Friday and two lifting sessions in the week. And you're yeah. like, oh man, like you should probably do a bit of mobility. You know, like you yeah. can't, it's so hard to, yeah, to, to, unless you're engaged in that one to one coaching thing, you really can't advise someone the best way to manage that, can you? Yeah. You just try it on error as well. Like this is the kind of thing that's like we're into, we are in the realms of entertainment as much as entertainment. So we're training people, but you know, people are here to be entertained to a large degree. So then it's like, okay, well, you know, is this, is this, you know, helping this person be a bit happier in their life? Cause they, Oh, I've done that class and it smashed me. It's like, okay, well, you know, we can, can kind of go casually push them in the right direction. But, you know, we can't necessarily, 
you know, tell them exactly what to do because, you know, it's that kind of thing like, oh, you can assess someone and find out the ultimate training program. This is the thing you need to do to get the biggest biceps your genetics will allow. You just need to follow this. But then they go, oh, well, that workout only takes five minutes, but I prefer to do a half hour arm workout and, you know, chat with the bros. <laughs> there is, you know, there is an element of that. I think people don't really pay attention too much. Like, you know, it is like, at, like everyone kind of takes training at this kind of the the archetype of the athlete or the pro sportsman. It's like, oh, they're training just to get good at this activity. And that's the only focus. We see this as coaches because obviously we want people to get good. But then for a lot of people, they just enjoy the training. And, you know, they do want to get better. But like a large bit of their training is actually a social process just as much as anything else. So going to the gym, you know, making the faces in the mirror or like meeting up with the people who you only meet in the gym. Like I've got a lot of gym people, like I don't even know their names. Like over the years, just meet up, we've trained. We've like trained together, spot each other. Thing. I don't know their names. I don't even like have a way to contact these people. I meet them in the gym. Like I had done for years. And it's just like, okay, I know this like on Thursday, this guy, Mark, or say Mark, is training legs on Thursday, always trains legs on Thursday. So I'm there if I need help with legs. I can go, Mark, I know you can spot. Or, you know, just chat shit. Absolutely. Yeah, in that setting, it's 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 way more than just the outcome, like it than, yeah. than just the exercises themselves. Yeah, so then you're going like, okay, you know, we want to go to this person who's doing four BJJ classes. Maybe you need to tone it back, mate. You know, you just do two classes. But he's like, but then I don't get to hug the people. You know, I just want to come and get my bro hugs. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know. Then, you know, you got to find out, like, that's the person's motivation. Then you can go, like, okay, well, you know, let's just do, like, let's do your four classes, but two of them sit out every set. I don't know how you split up a BJJ class, but, like, sit out every second roll, just, like, chill. Take it, like, do half the amount. You still get the fun, you still get to come class, but you're just doing a bit less. I try to offer that advice to jiu-jitsu folks, but, man, we all know what it's like once you're in that fire and yeah. the, the adrenaline up you know you're like oh, i was gonna sit every second roll out tonight but fuck that i'm getting back in <laughs> yeah mate um tell me what you've tell me what you've got going on tell people where they can find your stuff you got the two podcasts link to that tell me about uh, if you're doing the handstand magazine the handstand press that's not actually me that's actually elisa's running that one ah okay so it's kind of, yeah, everything that's kind of blurred lines between all the stuff we do. But uh, that's Elisa's yeah. baby project, Handstand Press Magazine. Check it out. The As far as I know it, probably not the first, but as far as we know, the first Handstand Magazine in the world. Where it's all community-driven as well. Just like, you know, we pay for this out of our pocket to make it happen. It's not a it's not a product. It's just more to get something cool like this. And it's, wow. yeah, it's, it's cool. Like, it's articles from everyone, photography. Yeah, if you... If anyone wants to submit an article or photos or anything, check out handstandpressmagazine.com, is it? We find it on Instagram anyway. Cool. But, uh, yeah, that's you know, it's a cool project. But then to find me specifically, modernmobility.com or emmettlewis.com will find most of my stuff. Uh, handstand, yeah. Handstand Factory as well, of course. We have online courses for all levels of handstands uh, with flexibility and all of stuff. And then, yeah, we're dropping the M3 courses, sort of hoping soon enough with everything else going on. Are you currently taking on any more clients or is that uh, closed for no, now? I just have a waiting list at the moment. So if you want to get in touch, you know, get in touch, I'll put you on the waiting list. Mate, awesome. 
I've got to, um, I will take your advice and I am going to uncover some of my old programs from you. Yeah. Here's my one training question for you while yeah. I have you. If I'm working on my back bend uh, once per week, so I'm doing three working sets yeah. once per week, not much time on it at all. Um, and I'm now combating against a lot more jujitsu volume. So yeah. the body's getting tighter, especially in, in that uh, trying to, it's, it's harder to get into extension. Would you suggest that I up the volume of that training to twice or three times a week? Uh, I'll give you an alternate suggestion. So work out however many kind of hard sets, like hard kind of rolls you have in your session, BJJ, and then do half the number of bridges, but don't push the depth. So it's a very simple way of doing it. Like assuming your bridge is roughly where I can remember it to be, then like, oh, okay, I'll do, say I had like, you know, a two hour long BJJ thing with six hard rolls. Okay, I'll do three sets of bridge at the end. And I'll just push it about 70, 80%. Okay. And do that at, at every training session. Yeah. So just get a bit more frequency in, but like, I'd almost say, you know, it's kind of grease the groove, but, or informal training. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that. And then it kind of tracked my jujitsu volume as well. Yeah. Just one way, like one way to approach it would just be like, okay, I'll just do a small bit to counter what I've been doing. It's kind of like, let's think of it this way. We have this idea in some yoga schools of counter poses where you do one pose, then you will do another pose to kind of relieve the stress of it. The classic one, doing a bridge or doing a wheel and then rolling up in child's pose afterwards. But we could just take that idea and go like, oh, you're basically in the kind of crab BJJ position, cramped up. And why not just do a bridge as the counter position to it? Yeah. That's, that's kind of the way I've try, always tried to look at it. It's just one of those things. When you finish BJJ, getting into the – like that is – because it's the counter, it's the one time where you really – like your, your subconscious doesn't want to do it. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'll do it. I'll do it at the gym when I get to the gym tomorrow. I won't do it now. Yeah. But now yeah. is when you need it. Yeah. Like it could like literally just trying to make it a bit more informal. You could literally just go, like, okay, I'll have like a few stretch, like doing a few gentle stretches between your kind of rolls isn't going to trash anything unless you're obviously in a hard pre-competition phase, but if it's just normal yep. sort of training, if you're like, okay, I'll just stretch like my Cobra, I'll stretch my quads while you're waiting, getting the instructions for the next roll. Then, okay. Yep. You know, I don't know. I assume you're kind of ro like roll is like two, three minutes then there's kind of a break about a minute or two in between then repeat. Yeah. The rolls are longer, but yeah, it's like, yeah, seven, seven to 10 minutes and then um, one or two minutes off. Yeah. Like in those one or two minutes, just do a small bit of stretching, but you could kind of pick one of the programs or pick some exercises and be a bit, you could be formal about it. I've got like, okay, I'll have these three exercises. I'll do quads first, Cobra, and then bridge. Uh, okay. Quads first, Cobra. Yeah. Okay, cool. Here's a question. Yeah. Is there a variation of the Cobra that can be done without hanging apparatus? Yeah, just the normal on the floor one. Oh, what? Where you push your hands into the ground and yeah. sort of arch up? Yeah. Okay. It's never, it's never, okay. I probably need to, I uh, probably need to look back at some more technical points on that. It's, it feels like a good stretch, but it never feels like it kind of hits with as much weight as, say, a hanging Cobra or, a, yeah. or even a wall. Yeah, no, it's definitely like it's, Definitely on our lower terms of other stuff, but it, you know, it'll, we're not like 
this thing, you're not stretching to get better at being flexible. You can still do your one bridge session a week. You're stretching to basically relieve the tension, reset the length tension relationship. Yeah. Bring myself back to baseline. Yeah. And that doesn't take a lot. That just takes a little bit. Emma Lewis, you're the fucking man, dude. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having me back. Mate, absolutely. It was actually your third time on the Jungle Brothers podcast today. I don't know if you saw it yet. You probably didn't. I posted a photograph from our Instagram of uh, when you when that we took on that first podcast back at the old gym. Oh wow, yeah, it's been yeah. cool to watch like your guys' journey over the last while. Like, yeah, from like when we first met, you guys were like three of us, like, yeah, we got this gym. We're still working in the film industry. We just kind of set it up because like we wanted a place to train that was cool. And like, we don't really have like a business plan and we're just like, we got this space and we've got some equipment and then like, then it's just like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, shit, now we're bursting at the seams and we have to like get a thing and make things a bit more like get a bigger facility and. Yeah, it's been a bit of that. There was, um, and we still don't have a business plan, but there was, um, the, there was so many steps in between that, like, Hey, let's just open this place to come to get to. Hey, we're bursting at the seams. We need a bigger spot. Like, there's a lot of yeah. a lot of times we fail. But yeah, it's it is it is cool. It's nice to, you know, thanks for thanks for recognizing. It's been a cool journey, and it's been lovely to build relationships with people people such as yourself. Yeah, you know that you. that yeah that are ongoing. I hope um yeah I hope fuck borders and all that settles at some point and we can have you back here man I'd love to I'd love to train with you again in person yeah. now we still have our like our fantasy van trip of Australia I'm gonna live the Australian van life and go to beaches and I hate beaches by the way but I'm gonna do them anyway just to like get the Instagram <laughs> photos <laughs> mate you're a legend thank you for making the time today uh, no um, I'll, uh, this is a, a, a big chat um, I'll make sure to link everything to what you're putting out and um yeah, dude. Thank you. I appreciate your advice on the personal level to help yeah. me with my back bend. Oh, no problem. No problem. Anytime, bro. All right, Emmett. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you dug today's episode, please share it with a friend. Pass the episode on. Get the word out there. But also go check out what Emmett's doing. If you want help with any of the stuff, um, we didn't go as deep into the mobility realm as, as he could have today uh, because we were busy talking about other awesome things. But if you want to help with it, you know, handstands, mobility, strength work, he's the man. So check his stuff out. Follow him on Instagram. Uh, show the love. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week.